Hello, and welcome to Objects in This Review, the podcast where men discuss the paths our lives take and what we hope to see on the road ahead. I am your host, Travis Montez. In this episode, I interview my friend, Ruben Porras Sanchez. Ruben is an agent and account executive at a large speakers bureau in New York City and a community activist who wears a number of hats. In this episode, we discuss defying expectations, even our own, to create the life that we want. Now, I don't want to say that this episode is about the pursuit of happiness. I think that what Ruben and I are really talking about is the pursuit of wholeness and how you create a sense of that as gay men of color. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. This is Objects in This Review. I just sort of want to jump in with you, Ruben, and talk about your work and what you do. So, like, how would you define what you do? I'm a talent agent. I guess that's the way to describe my my day-to-day job. I'm a talent agent. I represent people for paid speaking engagements. And my job is to find and secure meeting planners and organizations that want to bring in a paid speaker. That's kind of like, you know, on the job description, if you're applying for the job, what I do. Okay. And um, what do you really do? <laughs> I build relationships. I feel like my a big part of my job is making friends and helping people out. And at uh, my agency, it's building long-term relationships with people who are looking for speakers and looking to have these speakers make a significant impact at their event. So yeah, I, I talk with people. I find out really just a lot about what's going on with them so I can get an idea of what they're trying to accomplish. And then with my amazing roster of speakers, find somebody that I can plug in and fit into that time slot to help them accomplish it. So I think when people hear like speakers bureau or like public speakers, they think of like quote unquote motivational speakers. Um, Yeah. And so like what kind of, like what kind of speakers do you represent? I don't want you to name drop if you can't with your amazing roster of speakers. Um, (laughs) But like, what's a, what makes a successful speaker and what kind of like relationships do you build? It's just a fascinating work where I feel like a lot of people don't know that this even exists as a thing. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know it, it existed until I did. So yeah, we do represent like motivational speakers also. But a big part of our roster are former politicians, heads of state, celebrities, best-selling business authors, journalists, chefs, entertainers. So we, we, we have a pretty expansive roster where um and i think it's just the nature the the industry looks for speakers from from everywhere my agency happens to have an expansive roster because like i'm humble bragging but not really we're the best agency in the world so we we attract talent bragging bragging that wasn't a humble brag that was just straight up (laughs) bragging yeah yeah so it's fine i was just bragging (laughs) we're the best agency in the world so we have a roster of speakers that can pretty fit into any slot that a meeting plan is looking for whether it's a marquee speaker that can sell out a venue of twenty thousand people for a speech um, and not a concert or something, or mm-hmm. if you're looking for someone for a breakout session to go in pretty deep and granular on some obscure subject, we represent speakers across um, yeah across the board. How involved are you in helping speakers develop their message or like what they actually speak about? For the vast majority of my roster, not very involved at all because like the brag that I had, we're the best agency in the world. Part of what comes with that is that the speakers we represent come to us already almost 
yeah, completely baked and developed and, and are capable of speaking. But there's part of my job also, not really my job, is actually not part of my job responsibility, what I'm about to say. Part of my responsibility, I feel, to the industry is finding talent from underrepresented communities and pulling them in. Right. Uh, why do I feel that that's a responsibility yeah. of mine? Yeah. Because the industry, like most industries, has been largely heterosexual um, white men. And I felt like listening to those great white men speak, I was like, oh, this is great and all, but I know there are people from my communities who also have similar experiences, similar success, and stories that aren't being shared out there that probably will resonate more with folks that look like me, that come from a similar background to me. And I would like to amplify those voices so that people from my community would want to listen. And on the flip end of that, I was like, there's a lot of money in this industry, and I want people from these underrepresented communities to have access to that money. And it, it, it can be game-changing for, for people. There's a, a speaker that, that I, someone whose, whose story I knew was just going to blow up. I found her on Twitter, and I stalked her for like three weeks. And I was like, listen, you have no idea how your life is about to change. I want to help you navigate this process. And she ignored me for, <laughs> and then I had to hit her up. And then I hit her up again. And then I just went to, I was like, listen, clearly I didn't hack into your account, but I'm telling you, these people are in your account right now. They're selling you these promises right now. And I didn't, and I wasn't vague about the people. I specifically, I mean, other people trying to like poach her and, and work with her. Yeah. And I named specific people and I straight up said, if this person hits you up, you can work with them. If this person hits you up, stay away from this person. These people hit you up. Here's the benefit. Here's like, here's the pros and cons. And she responded saying, you know, can we go out to dinner one day? We went to dinner and I talked with her about the industry and about what's possible. And I remember telling her, I was like, listen, you know, your people are just learning who you are. You're going to start out. You're probably going to make your first few speeches about $3,000 a speech. As you gain a bit more attention, will we, meaning me as an agent, but also will condition the, the market to have you go up to about $7,000 a speech. And she was like, really? You can get paid that much for a speech? I was like, yeah. I was like, and eventually we'll probably get you like $12,000 a speech. And she was like, $12,000? And I was like, yeah, $12,000 a speech. Now she's making about thirty-four, $35,000 a speech. She uh, retired her mom. $5,000 a speech? A speech. And she's probably doing about 50 what speeches a year. What do you look for in a speaker as I write this down? <laughs> what do you look for in a speaker? What makes a compelling speaker? Um, you mean like what, what do I personally look for? What does the industry look for? I think I mean both. Okay, so uh, the industry has shifted recently um, with the I don't say the proliferation of social media, but I feel like social media has become a staple in society now. At first it was like, what is this weird, obscure thing where a bunch of people go to overshare? And then advertising it's dollars. This patch of narcissism. Yeah, exactly. Then advertising dollars got into it and everyone was like, oh, it's actually a place to sell things um, and a legitimate place to sell things because there's a captured audience. And probably the last five years, the speaking industry has finally caught up to that. And 
So I'm going to say what the industry looked for before and then what it looked for looks for now. Before the industry caught off with social media, it was looking for people, if you were a motivation speaker, who had a compelling story that was popularized um, and picked up by society in some way that will resonate with an audience. Now, what the, and that's just for like motivation to speaker or if you're a thought leader and you know, you're writing about disruptive innovation and, and you, you happen to own and be the CEO of a company that disrupted the market or, yeah. yeah, or, you know, you're a journalist and you're pulling surprise or something like that. Um, but now the industry is really looking for, um, people to not only come in and speak on those things, but also to be marketing pieces for their company. So a big part of the industry is popularity, either in mainstream media or like celebrity life or on, on social media, being a popular social media figure. So you now you have to do both those things and be an expert in your field, be an exceptional motivational speaker, be, you know, a, a world leader that's, you know, just on a whole nother level of world leaders there. This is sounds like funny, but they're like former mayors that come to us and they're like, you know, I was a mayor of this big city and I want to be a speaker. And we're just like, no one's going to be interested. <laughs> it just feels weird to say that because they made a significant impact. But with the way the industry has responded to social media, if popular coach is not interested in you, they're like, well, my audience isn't going to be interested in you. But then there's also still some like diehard. No, I just want to hear the information. All right, like bring this person in. If they turn schools around in this city, I'm interested in that. I want to hear that. But a, a large part of the industry is now like, I want to hear it and I want to be able to promote who you are being at my event. And how long have you been? I said 15 years. Is that right? That you've been doing this about 15? I guess it's about, no, it's not. <laughs> it's been since about 2002, I've been in this area. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so in addition to this, you also do community building work. Um, that seems to be a common thread, right? Like representing marginalized communities, even in your professional life, that's something that you've sort of like wedged in, even though it's not a specific part of your job. Um, talk to me about community building and how that became, well, what are you, what are you doing in that capacity now? And why is that important to you? I can't think about community building without like speaking about my parents, just because... Yes. They, um, I'm, I'm such a, <laughs> such a ward ahead in punk. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so my, my, my dad was a double amputee. Um, he lost both his legs in a car accident, as you know, when I was eight. Mm-hmm. And Where did you I, grow up? You were eight. Where were you living? Uh, in the Bronx, um, in, in the ghetto, <laughs> mm-hmm. in the, in the hood. Um, and your my parents, dad, they were, were your parents born in New York as well? Um, my dad was born in Puerto Rico. My mom was born in New York, and we lived in the Bronx you know, forever. My mom still lives in the place where I was raised. Um, and you say we, your mom, your dad, and... My mom, my dad, and my three older brothers. Um, we all grew up on Burnside and Andrews. <laughs> The Bronx. The Bronx, the hood. And when my dad lost his legs when I was eight, I remember thinking, just because I was eight years old, it was the 80s, and being a cruel child, like, oh, you know, look at 
my dad's handicap and he can't really show up, right? Because I was eight and dumb. We, one, my, my dad, after he got his surgeries done and went to PT and all that, he was like, I'm going to learn how to drive again, you know, using hand controls. And actually, I'm going to go back to work. And on the weekends, we we're going to go volunteer. And my mom was like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm cooking for, for six, but I'm neighbors are hungry, so I'm going to cook for 10. Oh, this person's baby daddy's not around, but we're going to be, you know, the babies are the parents. and all. So they just always, always, always gave back. And I think what I got from that was no matter our circumstance, because we were really in the hood, like, like in the hood, the hood, no matter our circumstance, no matter what people perceive of us, because the way I perceive my dad to be, we can always give back. And I think from a young age, I didn't just get that we can always give back, but in, in giving back, I saw the impact that it had on people's lives. Like the homeless guy, Matt, would come around every Friday, really happy to have like a plate of Benny and arroz con pollo and something like that. And I was like, this isn't like... The power this, of like a simple meal in general. Yeah, like this matters to people, right? So if you're asking where my community building has come from, it's it's always been there by watching my parents. And then at a certain age where I just had more agency of my decisions in my life, I was like, oh, I'm going to do what my parents did. I'm just going to do it in this other space. I'm going to coach football in the Bronx or do youth leadership in the Bronx or mentor middle school students. And right now, my consistent thing is I'm you know, politically engaged and civically engaged, serving on the board of the Stonewall Democrats. Can we talk about pride? Sure. This year, um, you created something really special and different at this year's New York City Pride. Tell me, tell us about it. On, I don't know what Friday it was, but the Friday before New York City Pride, Roe v. Wade was overturned. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I I had two friends who were down in uh, Washington Square Park protesting and, you know, just letting... <laughs> their anger and upset out with everyone, and they text my husband and I, and he was like, "Hey, do you guys mind joining us?" I'm like, sure, let's. I'll join you. Well, of course, like it's not even a question because <laughs> I need to get this energy out. Also, you know, I just needed to be there. So we're marching. Um, by the time we get down there, the, the the march was in Union Square. We get to Union Square. We're marching all the way up to 42nd Street, like this impromptu, obviously, like the, the ruling happened on Friday, this march is happening on Friday. There, there are no cops like blocking the streets. They're just New Yorkers on, on bicycles. There was like a, a biker crew, like a legit Harley Davidson biker crew blocking the streets so we can march. And I was like, this is really fucking cool. <laughs> and, and we're marching and there are thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people there. And I remember thinking... This is crazy. Like all of these people here marching because there's a, a a group of. I was like, all of these people are marching here because there's a segment of our society who want to take away a majority of our society's rights. Women being a majority, they're like, you know, there's this. I was like, and on Sunday, two days from now, there's going to be a whole nother group of people marching at Pride. For the same reason, because pretty much the same group is trying to take away our rights. And I thought to myself, how awesome would it be if New York City Pride 
for the first time, just step back because the moment was and should have been focused on women and those with reproductive rights and health that were being that were impacted that day, overturning of every way, right? And I said, while we're in the street marching, and it's like 8.30 or something, I text a friend of mine, um, and I was like, hey, do you have anyone's contact information from Heritage of Pride? Yeah. I was like, yeah. So I reached out to them. I'm like, hey, would you guys be willing to step back and let Planned Parenthood lead the Pride March this year, given the news of the day? And they said yes. And I was like, oh. <laughs> Now I have to do something. <laughs> yeah. You expected like the pushback, right? Yeah. Because it never happened before. Did when you were sharing that idea before you like got to Heritage of Pride, did you like receive anything that people were like, that's impossible? Oh yeah. They're like, they're not gonna do that. Like at because other people like they're why it's pride. It's and it's so interesting because it was it's a pride celebration, right? Mm-hmm. Like, no, it's a, it's a celebration, but it's a march. <laughs> right. it's, and reproductive freedom is not, that's the problem. Like, people think of reproductive yeah. freedom as a straight woman's issue. Uh, yeah. It's like, guys, if anyone <clears throat> should get that, it's it's this community. So, Look around. Look around. So speaking Be about <laughs> the, you know, Stonewall Dems and, and the board, and I love these people, like, I really do. And, and their commitment, the fact that they show up every month. And, but I, I remember one of the first emails that went around to the board was, we need to release a statement, Clarence Thomas is coming for LGBTQ rights and his concurrence. And I said, um, no. Today, <laughs> they took away women's rights and people with reproductive issues rights. If we're going to release a statement, it needs to be focused on that. Not about coming after marriage equality. That needs that hasn't happened yet. Yes, we need to address it. But right now, today, speak to the moment. Yeah, people are being impacted. People have been impacted. Like, let's talk about this. Dale's like, no, and but they're that's, also, by the way, members of our community. They say yes, and I have. <laughs> yeah, so I I email her, and I'm like, you know, would you guys be willing to? lead pride this year given the news of the day and she was like absolutely and i was like holy shit okay <laughs> so now that both people have agreed we have to actually make this happen so you're uh, asking this not even sure what people's reaction is going to be and people's initial reactions being negative and i love that example um because it really speaks to like what i want this what objects in this review is about so you and i have known each other a very long time a little bit yeah um and so one of the things that I've always found amazing about you is like how you have never been bound by what has happened. You were always sort of like a free thinker. But like at this stage in your life, what I think appears a little bit different is like there's a level of focus and follow through and bravery that like was not necessarily there when yeah. I first met you. I think that's the politest way that I can put that. Yeah, I was um, mad and responsible. And like, <laughs> What is responsible? So, like, when did we meet? 2007? Seven, yep. Um, so, like, what shifted to, like, take these, I feel like your career in terms of, like, managing speakers has elevated. Your participation in civic matters has elevated. Like, you've taken what I think of, like, mostly as visionary roles and, like, also 
connected that with like action and leadership. And so like what has helped you cross those bridges? Oh, not even just that, but like also relationship wise, right? Like you somebody's husband now. So like <laughs> Yeah. I I remember someone um Sylvia. Sylvia <laughs> mm-hmm. so, uh, hi. Yeah. Um, who is, um, a H-I-G-H. Life coach. Yeah, Sylvia High, H-I-G-H. Yeah, uh, wonderful uh, life coach and speaker who has impacted both of our lives. Um, I'll tell you one of the first things that I learned from Sylvia, but go ahead. Yeah, so I remember one time she, I forgot you know where I was, but she saw me show up, I guess the way you're describing now. And she sat down with me and she shared the story with me. She's like, you know, I was in a meeting one time with like the board of directors, blah, blah, blah. And I did this presentation and, and I knocked it out the park. And I remember my boss coming up to you saying, you know, there are two Sylvias. And, um, and she's like, what do you mean? They're two Sylvias? What? She was like, there's this Sylvia that I saw today. And then there's the irresponsible child, Sylvia. Which one are you going to be? Ooh. And she was like, and that's how I experienced you today, Ruba. So which one are you going to be? <laughs> that, when was that? This was probably around 2013. Around. Probably uh, not the first time that you'd gotten some kind of version of that feedback. Yeah, no. But I think it was the first time. That was around the time I met my husband. So I was like on the, this cusp of like stepping into something new Mm -hmm. um and it's been a work and it still is a work and not i don't want to say in progress the work is just choosing it every day because it's Mm -hmm. it's you know you could choose something else like um you could choose comfort yeah you could choose comfort like seriously when i was when i was marching that friday i was like oh yeah this is powerful and we're gonna go to dinner afterward and that's it Mm -hmm. i'm not gonna engage with the board and be upset before pride on Sunday. I'm just going to go enjoy pride. And in every scenario, you can just choose comfort and not to do something. And for me, I don't, I don't, I almost feel like I owe it to my parents, but I feel like I can't or choose not to choose comfort when I think I could make a difference. I not make a difference. I, 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 I told someone once never take a break from being the difference. Mm-hmm. And, and what I meant by that was, you know, like every day we could, we could be doing something that's like, you know, I'm going to go help these people pick up trash in the park or whatever the case may be. But I think there are moments where you can show up in a way that actually changes something completely. And if those moments arise in your life to not take a break from stepping up in those moments. You know, that's, you know, I'm as middle-aged as you can get, but that's like a bit of knowledge yeah. that like, I really exactly, feel like I right? just wrapped my um, mind around is that it's like, um, the marches yeah. are important and like make them happen, but like it, like, don't leave that vision or that commitment there. Like you can be difference making in your home, at your job, um, kindness, inclusion, compassion, um, People need those everywhere um, and all the time. And like rethinking the way that we do things so that everyone um, feels seen and valued. Um, those are things that you can do in so many interactions that aren't just the big ones that get you notoriety. 
and and when they don't give you notoriety, those are probably have the best impact. I think. I think that was it was a big part of this this pride thing. And for me, it was it was a lesson while I was doing it in allyship because, you know, I, I did this organizing behind the scene. I did all this. I, Alexis was at Pride, and I remember um, when Alexis confirmed, thinking, "Wait, they're not just coming after women. They're not just coming after LGBTQ people. They're coming after Black people also. It's the same fucking group, <laughs> right?" Yeah. And I also represent the founder of Black Voters Matter. And I said, hey, I text her. I was like, hey, I just got a heritage of pride to do this extraordinary thing that they haven't done in their 52-year history. I think it's 52 years. I think it would be a stronger statement if you were here also to show a unified voice, a unified front, because the LGBTQ community coming together, women coming together, and Black people coming together we're pretty much saying, like, fuck you, don't mess with us, because we will unite. And she was like, yeah, I'll be there. Uh, so then Pride March happens, and the next day the New York Times cover is of Alexis, Latasha, and organizers from Pride leading the Pride March as a unified front. And I remember like seeing that, you know, being overwhelmed or whatever, and Ro came to me, and he was like, "You know, my husband Ro. He um he used to work in uh, the Obama White House, and he was like, you know, what's the first thing we do every single morning in the White House comms department? He was a part of the communications team there. I was like, what? He says we read the New York Times, and he was like, and it helps us figure out how we're gonna frame issues of the day. And he was like, do you see what's happening with the news? And I was like, what? He says, everyone's talking about being united in this. He was like, I feel like you had a hand in that. <laughs> I was like, yeah, what? You're, you're the hand. I was like, oh. You didn't have any hands. You were the hand. You were the hand. Um, here's what I, yeah. I hope you don't mind. Um, and correct me, because like some of what I'm saying is like a bit of an assumption, but I think it's a qualified assumption. I think historically speaking, the person who would have been in this space occupying this, not historically speaking, but like you are often in rooms where like the default is straight white men, right? And so, and like overly educated or degreed, I should say, overly degreed um, white men who like come from means, right? Like that's sort of like those tend to be the bosses at place in spaces like this, right? And so I sort of want to talk about like being a queer person of color who didn't take the typical route to be where you are. What, how did you, and I think when you don't go through, I'm someone who like, I, I played the game. I did exactly what people always told me to do. I like went straight through school after college. I went straight to law school. I did all the internships. I was like the overachieving model minority respectability politics hoop jumper that was my life right and I, I, my impression has been that has not been your path i feel like for a long time you had like feelings about that you had feelings about like not being that guy and like how did you overcome those things to succeed i, I still have feelings about not being that guy if i'm being honest really? i i feel like i wish like you didn't go to college right i did but i didn't complete Okay. Um, and I feel like I let 
myself down for not doing that. Really? Yeah. And and part of me feels like um, I guess the way I got to these these spaces. I don't know because I want to say it's out of necessity, but I, I don't think it's that either. I because they're a large part of my block is still on the block. I could have just stayed on the block, right? <laughs> um, so I don't know. So I, I have the I have like this these two things that I'm wrestling with. One of them is that I wish I, I would have completed and taken that route of you know the internships and blah blah blah. And then the other part of me is that I also I just needed to survive. I needed to to live and um it's so interesting because from the outside looking in like one of the things that always impressed me about you was like i feel like you got into those rooms without playing those games and even though like i did them i felt that path was like took me so far from myself and was like such an abusive process um and what do i mean by that like i started interning when i was in high school i from high school like I always like went to school and worked even in law school like I went to school and worked and like good jobs but like you know from 1996 to like 2003 like all of my work was like part-time internship jobs and when I tell you like exploitation happened on like every level not just like getting paid shit money or no money to do labor that was then used to like earn people money like most of my internships were in, in entertainment or law or entertainment law or like but yeah in entertainment like those internships like i you know a producer of a talk show that i worked on like gra- like shook me <laughs> and like put his hands on me um because he felt like, felt like i would and cursed me because he felt like i wasn't moving fast enough and like no one you know what i mean yeah. so and like lots of experiences like being the first black person the only black person the only gay black person to do things and i remember my first internship as like a a, a law student i was going into the brooklyn da's office and the security guard called me a faggot um as i was going through like I, we had no interaction he, the, it was a woman who like turned to her partner and said look at this faggot security guard going into the da's office and me telling my supervisor that that happened and like her having no like not caring yeah like that had like she's like i'm not waiting into that and my point being i i love what i do i love the path that i where i've ended up um but i've always respected you for doing what you needed to do and still going where you needed to go whereas i feel like i went places that i i survived places and survived things that i don't know that i needed to survive by doing what people told me to do that's yeah. I so I feel like um, the reason I went to those places where where I needed to go and doing things that I just needed. To, the reason I did that, and this is why I say I, I still have like feelings and, and regrets about it, is that to this day I think there's a certainty and uh, maybe I'm making this up and projecting this on on you guys, <laughs> but I, I experience people who have completed college as having um, some stableness about where they stand in society as it relates to careers. And I don't mean... Oh, student loans. That's, that, that's, <laughs> the, that's a stabilizing agent. Um, when you are still paying for college, you, you get your ass stable. Yeah. <laughs> you're still paying for that shit. Yeah. I mean, I, I almost feel like it's a come from almost. Like, there's a, there was a significant moment in 
your life, like this coming to age experience that you all went through and completed. <laughs> and for that reason, there's a groundedness that I experience a lot of grads having that I, to this day, don't experience myself as having. And, and also, I don't experience similar people like me, people who have, you know, I won a full freaking scholarship to college and, and lost it, right? People who have started and didn't complete. Is it that you feel like you let people down who have, like, invested in? Like, what is, what is that? I think it, part of it is that, and part of it is also, I, you know, I know, obviously, I'm fucking capable of doing that. It's To me, it seemed like it was especially looking back and I'm, I'm saying looking back, meanwhile, I'm like still taking one class because I'm going to complete. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's thinking like, I, I'm so capable of this. Why was I such an asshole? Um, mm-hmm. yeah. <clears throat> I feel like you know, I teach now. Um, and like some of my students, because I teach classes at night, most of my students, at least before the pandemic, most of my students tend to be people who came to either their second career or they're just now going to college for the first time, like later in life. And and this is something that I found when I was a student in law school, like as someone who went straight through and now as a professor who's teaching people who like maybe didn't go straight through or like are now doing something else. I feel like people who lived come to college, they're like the better students in some ways um, because like, they really have a sense of like what they want to experience in their education. They, there's an ownership of their education and a creativity and like a, like they know why they're there. Yeah. And I wish, for example, I'm glad that I went straight through to co- like, I'm like, I don't regret going to college at all, but I wish that I had taken a huge break between college and law school yeah. um, so that I could have like approached my education in more of an authentic way, as opposed to just doing what, everyone around me took like even down to choosing i chose to like go in debt to go to a college because people told me that that was the college that i needed to go to as opposed to going to the place that would have paid me to go yeah and i probably would have ended up doing exactly the same work with none of the debt (laughs) yeah and you know i don't know that like those degrees gave me a sense of groundedness like i i know that i've jumped through the hoops but even as I jumped through the hoops, I still felt as a queer black person that there was so much more I had to do to prove that I deserved to be at the table. Yeah. That like my degrees almost didn't even fucking like doing what people told me to do, going into debt, getting that NYU degree instead of like that St. John's degree. Yeah. Um, didn't make things easier the way that people told me. And in fact, in some ways, made it harder. I can see that. Like, all, people were like, you didn't deserve, you didn't, you only got those things because you're gay and black. I can see that. Like, that made the scrutiny more in some ways. That's interesting. That it, because I, one, I just never, like, you know, like, I had worked so hard. And still, but like, in, in interviews, like, in my, like, when I was graduating, like, looking for a job after law school, yeah. people in interviews were like, almost upset that I had so many things on my resume. Like one guy said, Oh, I guess there's no rain in your life. I'm like, why are you angry that I have experience? Why are you angry that I have experience? Yeah. Why are you like, 
oh, I bet my teenage daughter wouldn't have gotten in that program. Oh my god! Why are you talking about this? Like in one of my interviews, they they prayed. Like I'm interviewing for a law firm, and they were like, on Mondays we start our staff meetings with a prayer, like this. I'm like, guys, <laughs> I am paid. Like I've gone into debt for this experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My education is like a couple of houses, and this is where I am. This is where I'm still having to jump through hoops. Like that wasn't enough. That wasn't the t- the you can write your own ticket. That's what they told me. I did not write my own ticket. <laughs> I remember getting told that too <laughs> when I got the scholarship. To- I feel like you've written your own ticket. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like so, it's so funny when we talk about perspective because like I definitely played the game um, that people told me to play, and then still had to hustle. It didn't spare me the hustle the way that people told me that it would. Can we talk about relationships a little bit? Of course. How's married life for you, Ruben? Pora Sanchez. How long have you been married? I've been married since 2018. Okay, that's like just out of the newlywed phase. Yeah. Still like him? Yeah. (laughs) Of course. It's great. I, um... Did you always see yourself as someone who would get married? No. I mean, I didn't not see myself as someone who, like, would get, I was like, I didn't see it one way or the other. I mean, it wasn't like a thing that gay people were doing when we, like, that That right just happened. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. (laughs) So in in that sense, yeah, once I came out, I was just like, oh, yeah, if if I fall in love with someone, of course I'm going to marry them. It's going to be here or somewhere else, but I'm going to do it. But yeah, no, it's great. I I was telling someone the other day about you know how I decided I wanted to to get married and what came up for me, and it was the, the simplest thing, and it's still true to this day. Um, I just remember thinking, oh, I want every single day for the rest of my life to be like this, where mm. we're just hanging out, friends, going on walks, debating laying up on each other watching TV. Like, I don't want this to change. Like, this is great. And I remember when I proposed, you know, you, you see all this, like, 90, not 90-day fiancé, like, all those, like, you know, bridezilla stories or whatever the case is. I was like, uh-huh. I hope nothing changes during these next phases. I hope nothing changes. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, I want us to grow and support each other in our careers and development and blah, blah, blah. But this using a phrase that you came up with years ago, use this casual wonderfulness, I hope never mm-hmm. goes away. So then, you know, we got engaged and it was, it was the same. And then leading up to our wedding, all the drama around that, and not drama between us or between families, just with my brother who ended up... Yeah, the usual wedding, yeah. family drama. He and I were just still the same. And we got married and oh. we're still the same. And, it, and, it's, and it's great. How is husband Ruben different from before husband Ruben? I have some ideas, but I want to see. <laughs> Wait, what are your? Well, I'm a lot more financially responsible in terms of planning. <laughs> like, oh, okay. You're not spending money you don't have anymore. Yeah, no, not at all. We're doing a, a lot, a lot better than than I guess before husband Ruben. <laughs> I don't know. I, I I think it's you know the long term thinking is, is the biggest difference, mm-hmm. and that's not really just like before husband Ruben is. It's at like the start of this relationship almost. Mm-hmm. Where I, I, What's the saying? Happiness is having something to look forward to. Yeah. And I remember um, almost immediately thinking, 
I'm not even going to engage with this guy or date this guy if I don't see something long term. He straight up said that to me. I'm not interested unless you're looking for something long term. And I was like, oh, wonderful. Great. Yes. Um, <clears throat> do you want to hear how I perceive what I perceive? No, to be I've, yeah. Time? Are you kidding me? That's why I cut my story short. Let <laughs> me <to> get to <laughs> that. <laughs> I feel, I've, like I said, I've known you a very long time. Yep. I've seen you through a number of experiences. Yep. I think I can say that. Um, I feel like you're calmer now. Like you're, there's a calmness to you. It's funny that we're talking about how you feel ungrounded. You seem more grounded than I've ever experienced you. Like there's a, a grown manness to you that I was like, did not even know was on the table. <laughs> um, and also, yeah. I'm approaching the part that might get me in trouble. I'm figuring out how to say it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna land this plane. I think you're also like beautifully protective of your relationship in a way that I've not seen you before. Like it's clear that like you val- that you experience yourself, that you value this relationship and experience yourself as valued and that that's important to you and like keeping the peace in it and around it. Like it radiates oh, yeah. as like a value that you have. Yeah. And yeah, whenever I thought of you before this period in your life, the word chaos came to mind. That, that word would be, a pretty accurate description. And that is not even, that is not the word. That is not my experience of you now. I think that's probably, yeah. And I still feel like I'm going to get emails about what I just said, but that's like the, <laughs> no, I know. Cause I feel like, I feel like the point could have stopped, <laughs> but then you went a little further just to Listen. ensure that the emails were <laughs> I'm, I don't want to, you know that my genuine is my thing. Yeah. I'm trying yeah. to be so understand. I could have said, but you did it. But I said, yeah. and it's accurate. Yes. Um, here we are. Um, yeah, chaos yeah. and now not. And so I guess, I mean, like, are you- <laughs> I love how you had to like you have to- sum it up just so in case chaos you all missed it through all that. Chaos. Now peace. Yes. And so, what? I don't want peace. <laughs> Listen, I think as as a recovering drama queen myself, there was a period in my life where chaos was very attractive. Yeah. Where commitment to where I thought like love was getting a very complicated and unavailable person to choose me or like change their behavior yeah. out of out of love for me like changing someone was the mark of love yeah. right? right like getting them to right um that whole idea of like kissing a frog and turning them into a prince and it's like bitch if you want a prince date a prince why are you dating frogs <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if frogs are your bag just date frogs yeah. but if you want a prince frogs don't turn into princes you know what i mean yeah. like they just especially not based on your kiss frogs are frogs yeah want a prince date one took me very long right and so I guess, you know, another question is like, what was that path like? Like, what, what did you have to let go of to be in the kind of romantic and romantic <sighs> relationship commitment that you are in? Chaos. A commitment to chaos. I, uh, a friend of mine said to me once, I don't know, we were, we were like talking about someone who we both admired, um, admire, she's still alive. And he described her and he was like, doesn't she just look so dignified? And I was like, yes, she does. And in his shady, loving way, turned to me and said, Ruben, what would it look like if you lived a dignified life? 
shit. And I said, oh. So I'm not your only shady friend. No, no, you're not my only shady friend. <laughs> and and then he also said it about himself, like, because we were both like, like, fuck, we want, like, that's... But he may or may not know this. That moment stood with me. I was like, what would it look like if I just decided to show up in a way? Like you valued yourself and your intimacy and your time. Yes. <laughs> like, what would that look like? Yeah. And, and this is like cheesy as hell for me, but I wanted to remind myself about that moment. So I changed all of my passwords on my email, my social media, just everything. To you want to tell us that so that we can all hack? Yeah, it's no longer it. But I changed it to dignified. Oh. Changed it to dignified life as a reminder, um, so I can stay in that space. So, uh, what's a dignified life to you? I don't know. It's 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 having fun and peace, being in contribution, and also going after mine. Like community too, right? Yeah. Whereas before, I was like, oh, I'm just going for mine. (laughs) Right? And, like, I feel like that's not a, um, that's sort of how the world tells you to do it. And it's incredibly lonely. Yeah. And, like, not all, not, like, the focus isn't on genuine. It's, like, getting mine, but only, like, what they tell me I'm supposed to have. Yeah, and then showing people that I got whatever, in quotations, is mine. Yeah. Look at everyone. Here's my thing that I got. Yeah. Well, thank you, Ruben. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Um, I have one more question for you. My last question is always, um, Ruben, what's in your rear view? What's in my rear view? I guess another way to ask that is sort of like, what are you letting go of now to get to that next phase in your life? You, you like, you're, we're having this conversation at a moment where I am really wrestling with something about like, and having like, I've been having conversations about sort of what's next for me. And a big part of what I'm wrestling with is, am I going to continue to do what I do sort of in the background? And what I mean, like what I do with Planned Parenthood and Pride and stuff like that, or am I going to step into a place where people see the things that I'm doing? Where you're in the spotlight or the driver's seat. Yeah, I would say the driver's seat versus the spotlight because it's, for me, it wouldn't be about me and the spotlight feels like it's about me. But I also think part of the visibility is giving other people permission. Like the thing that happened with pride, I think for most people it's like, Oh, this, yay, they're here. What it was, was one for me, it was came from a place of caring and mattering and allyship mm-hmm. that, um, wasn't about me. It was just about like mm-hmm. this thing. And, I think people should know that. And there are, there's so many more examples of things like that that I do. So I'm trying to, I don't know if it's in the rear view yet, this saying in the background versus, but I'm probably passing it. <laughs> and it's going to be in the rear view soon. And it's about, right, it's coming it's up. It's coming up, yeah. It's we'll, coming up, we'll right. Well, you have to make a decision. Like, what's, right, yeah. do I keep doing what I've been doing or do I redesign this aspect of my life? Yeah. Which is scary because I think for people in our generation, I'm a old, significantly older than you, but like 80s. Um, did you ever sort of grow up with this idea that like there was some point coming after you jumped through the hoops where like then you're done, right? And you just sort of like coast. Yeah. And you're like, oh, 
I don't know where that is. That does not look like it's in, yeah, right? And so yeah. like you're continually like figure. there's always like another thing yeah. to be figuring out and like, oh no, this isn't it. This is, right? Like yeah. there's the next thing that I have to figure out if like joy and connection and community are the point. Yeah. There's another wall to like climb over or knock down in myself to be able to do that. So for you, it's deciding background or foreground yeah well, thank you very much Ruben. thank you thank you for thank including you. me in this i appreciate of it of course thank you guys all for listening until next time and thank all of you out there for listening to this episode of objects in this review i am travis montez reminding you that the only reason to take a look back is to see how far you've come see you next time